If you've got a copy of Scripture with you, you can find Titus, the book of Titus, and uh, chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. By the way, we have some missionaries with us. They just got in a couple of weeks ago, but they've been running around different churches. Say hi to Josh and Jenny Farver. They're over in their corner. Stand up, Josh, real quick so we can recognize them, all right? Good to have you here from Togo, West Africa, uh, staying in our mission house. Great to have you. Thanks for coming. Titus chapter 1, as we continue in this series, Saving Grace, Changing Grace. Imagine, if you would, a 24-year-old man. Uh, he, he gets saved, and just a couple of months after he's saved, he's, he's eating up the Bible, he loves to preach, he's loving the Word, and somebody gives him an opportunity to preach in a church, a church that will hold about 300 people. There's eight people in the entire congregation, they all sit on the left side. And so he gets in there and preaches his guts out. And, you know, they're moved by his zeal. Not a lot of knowledge there, but he's got zeal. And they have a little potluck afterwards, and they ask him if he would like to be their pastor. That was me. That happened to me. I'm looking at eight people, about four or five months old in the Lord, thinking, there's only eight of them. I mean, how much can I screw up eight people? That was my, next, that was my thought going on inside. But I'd been in the Bible enough that I'd, I'd read 1 Timothy and meditated upon it. And 1 Timothy 3.6 came to my mind like that, and it, where it says that one of the qualifications of a pastor is that he must not be a new convert, lest being puffed up with pride, he come under the condemnation of the devil. Have you ever read that? As soon as that came into my mind, I thought, uh, you know, I think maybe I need a little more time. <laughs> So we're talking about the pastor, the elder, or the bishop. Three designations of the same guy in where we left off in this study. And I hope this will be very beneficial to you today. And with that in mind, I want you to look at verse 5 through 9, where it's Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete. That's that island in the Mediterranean, just south of the Aegean Sea. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there you have it. Paul drops off Titus on the island of Crete. And his purpose in being there is to go to every town. Now, by the way, historians tell us 
that there are a hundred towns or cities on the island of Crete. A lot of them. There wasn't a church in every one of them, but apparently there were several churches. It was beginning to spread. We don't have any record, historic record, of how the church began on the island of Crete, but we know it did, and it was spreading. That's why Titus is there. But notice what he says. I want you to put what remained into order in verse 5. That's a lot of words for, in the Greek, that's just one word in the original. But it's an interesting word. The root word, is we get our word ortho in this word. Ortho means, the word ortho, like something that's orthodox, is right. That's right doctrine. Orthopedic. That means, that's the guy who wants to, you know, tries to straighten out your bones. Uh, you know, orthodontist is the one who tries to straighten out your teeth. Obviously, I didn't see an orthodontist growing up. Anyway, that's another thing. But the idea is to get what that which the idea in this word is take that which is crooked and make it straight or make it right. That's the idea. Make making that which is taking that which is crooked and making it straight. So here we are. He's in Crete. The, Crete is a crooked place. Paul's thinking about it's it's morally abject. It's low in their morals. And that that immorality has made its way into the church. The culture of Crete is just like the culture that we're living in. And the problems in Crete are just like the problems we deal with, where the culture creeps in, you don't even know it, now you're acting just like them. And so Paul says, I'm leaving you, Titus, there to straighten things out, make them right, that are in the church. We work hard at getting a lot of things right. Would you agree with that? We want to get the right diet. We want to get the right business. We want to get the right education for our kids. We we want our yards to look right. We want the sports that our kids do. We want our kids to be right. We want our clothing to be right. We want our houses to be right. We, We want a lot of things to be right. A lot of things, but most of us don't pay as much attention to the most important thing, your heart and your life. Is it right? You say, wow, he's preaching at me. Actually, I'm going to start preaching to myself, so relax. Because we're talking about the pastors here, okay? If the pastors in the church aren't right, everything else starts going awry. If they're the standard. If they're not right, if they're not straight, if they're not godly, the church soon will not be as well. The great coach for the multi-Super Bowl winning New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, once said, good players can't overcome bad coaching. The coach, in this case, is the elder, the pastor, the bishop of the church. And I'm using all those words interchangeably because the Bible does. There are churches out there who, without warrant, without biblical warrant, will separate They'll say a bishop is this guy over here, he's over all these, and you know, a pastor's over here in this local church, and an elder is somebody else. They're all the same guy in the Bible, and I can prove it to you. I'll just give you one reference. One is, uh, one is in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, uses all those designations, pastor, elder, and bishop, for the same guy. But now I want you to cast your eyes upon a passage that beautifully puts it together. One of the great passages in the Bible on the pastor, elder, bishop. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Take a look at it. It says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. There's your first term. We see it here in Titus. That's the Greek word presbyteros. Can you hear the word presbyterian in there? Sure you can. It, means, it literally just means older one. 
I remember when I first became a pastor, I just sort of run by that one because <laughs> I wasn't that old. Now, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, the idea is the guy, the, the ink on his seminary degree is actually dried He's, before he starts writing books. <laughs> anyway, he's mature. That's the idea here, okay? And a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Watch it. Shepherd, that's the Greek word poimen, that's the word for pastor. The word literally means to feed, means to feed. Okay, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the word, watch, wait for it, episkopos. Sounds like episcopalian. Can you hear that in there? That's where they get their word, from this phrase right here. Epi is the, Greek, is the prefix, means over, and skapos, you can hear the word scope. To oversee, sometimes it's translated overseer. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for, shame, for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So you've got three designations, three terms, same guy wearing different hats. Following so far? Let me just make it real practical for you. As an elder, his life and experience are an example to the flock. Okay? As a shepherd, he's feeding himself while feeding the flock. And as an overseer, he's watching his own life while watching over the flock of God. Okay? So that just kind of gives you some sense of these guys and these terms that are used. And uh, with that, I want, let's look more closely at the text itself that we just read, okay? Titus 1, 5 through 9. The elder bishop pastor. The elder bishop pastor. Uh, the first thing I want you to note is that the elder bishop pastor, remember, three terms, same guy, different hats. Must be right in his heart. That's where it all has to begin, right? He's got to be right in his heart. And did you see the expression used not once but twice? He has to be above reproach. Did you see that? Some of you, if you have the old translation, it says blameless. The idea there is that the, the word here, it pictures an accusation that doesn't hold up in court. All right, that's the idea here in this word. And so in other words, the pastor, elder, bishop has to have sort of a Teflon quality to him. The accusations that are hurled at him don't stick. Not perfect. But the accusations, generally speaking, don't stick. And let me tell you something. Accusations come with the territory. They just do. I learned this very, very early on. I was a young pastor in Clarion, Iowa, in a home, summertime, window was open, you could, uh, you, the breeze was coming in, and uh, here was, uh, there was a painter on the, painting the house next door, and he had a radio. And it was a Christian program, at least I thought it was a Christian program. And I said to my wife, hey, honey, I'm going to go out there and, and uh, talk to that guy. He must, he's listening to Christian radio. So I walked over here. The painter was on the ladder. He said, hey, I see you're listening to Christian radio. He goes, no, no, that's just, that's just a station that's on there. I, I don't pay attention to religions and politics. And then he started talking about both. So we're talking. And he goes, I'll tell you something right now. He started lecturing me right there. He goes, I tell you, I mean, I'm telling you, when it comes to religion, there's one place, if I were to, I tell you one place I'd tell you never to go to, churches around here, don't ever go to Holmes Baptist Church. I was the pastor at Holmes Baptist Church. So I thought I'd play along with him for a little bit. I said, you know what? I said, that's interesting. I said, tell me about that. Goes, oh, 
let me tell you about that church. That, you know, can I, let me tell you something about that pastor in that church. I said, please tell me. He says, that pastor tells people to burn their Bibles. Well, about a month earlier, we had had several people come to know Jesus who were part of the occult, and they had taken drug paraphernalia and some books on the occult, and they had burned them. And what siphoned back to the community was that I was telling people to burn their Bibles. So I said to him, I said, you know, I know something about that pastor, and I, I'm really quite certain he would never do that. Oh, you don't know nothing. Oh, apparently not. So he went on to tell me all kinds of things about myself. He says, do you know so-and-so? And it was, he referenced a woman who would flit in and out of our church from time to time, had a child out of wedlock. And he says, yeah, if you ever looked, you ever looked at that kid? Looks a lot like the pastor there. He's looking right at him. And I go, uh, wow. Uh, let me tell you something. I, I, I'm pretty well acquainted with that pastor. I'm certain he would not do anything like that. And uh, and he, oh, you don't know. So anyway, I, I, let, I went back in the house. I told my wife, she goes, you got to go out there and tell him what you just did. I did. He wasn't real happy, I have to tell you. <laughs> but the accusations, they come with the territory. And if his heart is right with God, they're not going to stick. He's got to have a heart that's clean, a conscience that's clear. Again, he's not perfect, not that he never sins, never messes up. But generally speaking, he's not known for the things that he's accused of. He must be right in his heart. Remember, this is what Titus is doing, making, helping get things straight, right. Uh, now, the other thing is he must be right in his home. This is where it gets a little dicier, a little controversy here. Uh, in verse 7, do you see he's called God's steward? Do you see that there? That's a really cool word. That word steward literally means to manage the home. So this is a little bit like 1 Timothy 3 says that the pastor elder bishop has to be a guy who manages his own home well, or he's not going to be able to manage the church of God. So, and, he's, and now he starts to get into this litany. It's quite a litany of things. And he'll get to the big litany here in a little bit when he get, we get into the habits. But in the home, he, he, he focuses on two things, the marriage and the kids. So he said he needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, that's a subject of a lot of controversy. Husband of one wife. Let me tell you exactly what this phrase means. You should write it down. It means a one-woman kind of man. A one-woman kind of man. All right? That means he's dedicated to one woman. I had a pastor friend who took this so literally, so woodenly. He, when I became a widower, he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you're getting married again, but I could never get married again because it says that you can only have one wife. I said, you're not even interpreting this accurately. That's, you see, when you have a crooked understanding of the Bible, it'll, it'll lead to crooked actions. That is not what this word means. It means to be dedicated, or radically dedicated even, to one woman. Doesn't mean you've never, doesn't mean you have to be married. I've had people say, well, you can't be a pastor unless you're married. I think it's a good idea. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. He's saying if he is, he's dedicated to one woman. It doesn't mean you can't remarry. It means you have one and only one love. That's what it's talking about. This becomes very practical then, doesn't it? Right? And by the way, if you take the view one can never be a pastor who's been widowed or even divorced, and by the way, I'm not advocating that divorced people become pastors. I'm not advocating that. But the Bible does not exclude that necessarily. If there's a provenness, the Bible doesn't exclude somebody from becoming a deacon or a pastor. 
if, uh, if they've had something like this in their past, if they have been proven, the Bible says don't lay hands on anyone suddenly. The idea is you've really proven these individuals. Listen, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you take the view that one can never be a pastor who's been widowed or even divorced, then, then you have to apply the same standard to the rest of the qualifications because that's, that's called biblical exegesis. That's, that's right interpretation of the Bible. So let me explain what I mean. It says the husband of one wife. Then you've got a whole bunch of characteristics here. That If you take the position that husband of one wife means you can never ever remarry under any other circumstances, then you also have to believe that if I was ever violent, I could never be a pastor. You also have to believe if I was ever taking drugs or, uh, you know, a drunkard, then I could never be a pastor. You'd, it, there's a whole bunch. The point is you can't just single out one thing. Praise the Lord for salvation. Amen? Praise the Lord for the new creation in Christ. And again, I'm not advocating that a person who's been through a divorce should just easily put up, be put up there. No, there's other scripture that comes into play. And in most cases, this isn't, it isn't going to happen. But that, we, let's, I mean, don't go beyond what is written. That's what the Bible says. Let's not us do that either, right? Now he talks about the kids here too. And please notice they're not to be open to debauchery or insubordination. That's a, those are strong words, debauchery. What does that mean? The word, it's an interesting word, means unsavedness. <laughs> the idea is that they're acting out like unsaved children. And then they become scandalous. We know what insubordination means. I mean, not to be under, you know, you're not, you're not under rule. And it's referring to kids that are in the home. This is a tougher one because you're looking at a guy who's had a lot of kids. They're all sinners. Every one of them were messed up. Some of them worse than others. I mean, I know that the last two, you know, the caboose and the one just before him, were the ones, you know, that get a lot of notoriety because, I mean, they were the ones I'd literally be shaking hands. And I, I remember a teacher would come to the door. Hey, you know, praying for your son. I, <laughs> Thank you very much. There's four people behind you. And uh, I, had another, uh, I had another member of our church who would call me and say, hey, um, need to give you a report. That's <laughs> great. And then I remember the principal who would call me two, three, sometimes four or five times a week. We were becoming friends for all the wrong reasons. And uh, it, was, it was pre-scandalous, but just pre. I mean, I, could, I mean, people were saying, oh, those two little boys, they were so cute when they sat there in that pew. Well, that's because my wife held a knife through their throat. That's why. Well, not really, not literally, but she did threaten them with the pinch, the dreaded pinch. And these kids will tell you about it. I felt that pinch. That pinch hurts. It'll draw blood. You say, wait a minute, that's a control mechanism. You're darn right it is. Don't we have parents here that control their kids? Let me see a hand here. Absolutely. I can't save my kids, but I can control them for a time. And you know it. Only for a time. That's the reason why those control mechanisms have to be very, very, you have to be really, really careful with those control mechanisms. Because eventually, you don't get the control anymore. I couldn't save my kids any more than anyone else could. God would have to do that. And so, there was a time, I, I literally penned a resignation at a very low moment. I never submitted it, but I came that close to doing so. I can tell you that, that exasperating as it was, 
the key phrase here, I think, in, in, the, in this passage, and more importantly, even in, in 1 Timothy 3, is to manage their own home. You know, I, do you want, let me ask you a question. Do you want a pastor, elder, bishop that has an idyllic home? They're all little angels. They never do anything wrong. They're almost like the Virgin Mary all their life. There's no problem. Or do you want a pastor who has to deal with real issues in his own home, just like you do, but he manages it well? Which one do you want? Don't you want the one who can be an example to you, even under duress? Please say yes. Now, I would say this. If the first thing, the last thing, and the middle thing in between that comes to your mind when you think of your pastor is his rebellious kids, he might need to be looking for an exit. Because now he's, he's sullying his ministry. He's, it's, it's, he's cutting himself off between him and you and his preaching and such. So, but this is serious stuff here. So he needs to be right in his heart. He needs to be right in his home. He needs to be right in his habits. And this is where that litany, I just taught a litany of things here. You see them all. It's a big list. He needs to, look, he sees he need, the overseer must be above reproach. Not arrogant, quick-tempered, not drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's a lot. And we're not going to do a word study of every one of them, okay? But I got to tell you, this does sort of, doesn't this sort of separate the pastor from the pack a little bit? Doesn't it? Kind of does. You ever wonder where clerical garb comes from? You ever wonder where, you know, the collars and the, you know, the long flowing robes uh, that you see in Roman Catholic churches, some Lutheran churches, Episcopal churches, and a few others. Where they come from? I can tell you where they came from. They came from the 7th and 8th centuries, where it became the norm that, that, the, that the laity is separate, that the clergy is separated from the laity. And because after all, they need to look up at that man as the, the man of God, Right? But if I understand the Bible right, the clothing that we're to wear is not literal, it's character. It's not clothing, it's character. Our character is the thing that should distinguish us. Not because you don't want to be like this, but because you have something to look to as an example. Does that make sense? So you see all these things here. By the way, I'd offer to our small group that I wondered if I should wear one of those clerical garbs for just this message. They shot it down right now. So, oh well, I obeyed them. Anyway, but there's no question but that this passage does separate the pastor, elder, bishop from the flock to some degree by his character. And you'll notice it says, there's several of them there. Notice in verse, end of verse 7, not arrogant or um, quick-tempered. The word arrogant is an interesting word. Some of your Bibles say self-willed. That's even a better translation. It's, we, get our word, we get the word hedonist from this word. You know what a hedonist is? That's a man all about himself. And that's what the word means. A man, it's picturing a person full of himself. He's quick-tempered. And neither one of those things you're going to be able to hide for very long. And it's not the stuff of an elder. He's not a drunkard. That literally pictures a man at a bar sitting by the drink and just, fill her up, fill her up. He's not a drunkard. Not violent. The word violent uh, it means striker. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of guy who gets in the argument, he starts to lose the argument, he punches you in the mouth. Not that guy, okay? Not greedy for gain. First century writer said that Cretans 
stick to money like bees to honey. But this is where it turns now. It's really cool. But hospitable. It's a beautiful word then and now. The word hospitable means, wait for it, lover of strangers. That means the pastor, elder, bishop isn't a recluse. He doesn't hide in his office, doesn't hide in his home, doesn't hide out in his yard. If that is the person, he's not, you're not qualified. You need to be out there amongst the people. After all, aren't we called to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, right? So that pastor, elder, bishop has to be out there. He has to be a lover of the stranger. And this has evangelistic implications to it. So that's what he needs to be. That's how we, that's a habit. One of the important habits, I might add. So lover of strangers, lover of good, self-control, that speaks of mastery over whatever, whatever liberty he takes in his life. It can't become his master. Whether it be drink or entertainment, these things can't master the man. He must be upright, holy, and disciplined. So there is order to his life. He needs to be right in his heart, And he needs to be right in his home and his habits. And finally, he needs to be right in his head. It's probably a good thing to have a pastor who's got his head screwed on, right? So I want you to look at verse 9, because this is where we're going to end up. This is powerful stuff here, sometimes ignored. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. See it? As taught, so that he may be able to instruct in sound doctrine... And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are called to lead the church. I didn't make that up. The elders are to be men. That's God's idea. That's not mine. And notice he must hold firm. There is an an intentional word picture here. Hold firm. The trustworthy word. Somebody gives you a $20 bill and a $20 mile win. You don't grab it like this. You grab that thing. You don't want to lose that in the wind, right? That's the idea here. He's saying, hold on to this thing because people are trying to take it away. People are trying to suck it away. This is our authority. Hold on to the trustworthy word of God. Somebody just the other day told me about someone near and dear to them in their lives years ago who was going to divorce her husband, and she, he said, what, on what grounds are you going to divorce him? And here's what she said, God told me to. Let me tell you something. When somebody untethers themselves from the word of God and tells you God told them something, run from them. Run from them. Never, never, never untether yourself from the word of God. Does that mean God doesn't use experiences? Heck no. Yes, he does. Does that mean God doesn't give us supernatural experiences where you say, man, that's a God thing that took place? Of course not. God does wonderful things. I can just go through a litany of my own of amazing God moments, borderline miracles, if not miracles indeed. But never are they untethered from the word of God. The Apostle Paul said in the the epistle just previous to this, as he was awaiting a Roman axe, he said, I'm in, prison. I'm in chains in prison. He goes, but the word of God isn't chained. I love that line, by the way. And this is the thought that came to me. The word of God is not chained, but we'd better be chained to the word of God. Amen? 
And the pastor needs to be for sure. By the way, one more thing. I don't want to, I'm not here to wow you with nuances, but in the Greek, this is in, we call this the middle voice. Whenever something is in the middle voice, the word hold firm is in the middle voice. The idea is that he himself has to hold firm. You pastor, you elder, you bishop, hold firm to this thing. I mean, have you ever heard the expression, God's got this? You've heard that, right? That does not belong here. That's one of the most overused expressions I've ever heard. God's got this. The idea that I got to just sit back and watch God. That's not the kind of God we serve. God does great things, and there are some things we just have to wait for God to do. But there are other things, and this is one of them, where God says to the pastor, elder, bishop, hold, this is your responsibility. Grab a hold of this thing and hold firm to it. And, And you're not just doing that. There's a reason for this. And he's saying hold firm to it because... Paul said to the Ephesians, when I'm gone from here, grievous wolves are going to get in. They're not going to spare the flock. That's a danger. That's why our heads and our hearts need to be filled with the word of God. And notice to what end, at the end of verse, you've got to see this, at the end of verse 9, to, for instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Notice the juxtaposition, instructing and rebuking. The word rebuke, by the way, means to expose something. Carries a pointing the finger and exposing somebody's sin. Do you like doing that? <laughs> no one should like doing that. But I do want you to know something, that in the first century, when you wrote and when you listed things of importance, the most important thing on the list was always, are you ready for it? The last thing. Not the first. It was always the last. And that makes sense. You hear a great message that concludes with a great illustration. That's the thing you go home with, isn't it? That's the thing you remember, isn't it? That which was said at the end. The first century writers, they understood this. And so what they're saying here is the ability, listen to this, listen, the ability, now get a hold of this. The ability to teach the truth and rebuke error or confront error are distinguishing marks of an elder. And you've got to have both. It's, 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 it's the elder's job not to defend himself. His work, his ethic, and his God will do that. But to defend the faith. Remember the little epistle of Jude just before the book of Revelation? Jude says, man, I wanted to write you about our common salvation. But, but now, I mean, I'm being pressed upon that we contend for the faith. Because evil men are creeping in. It's the same thing to this day. So pastors are supposed to are both to comfort and confront. You can't just be a pastor who confronts all the time. Who wants that guy? You don't want to be the pastor who just always, <laughs> you know, cast for melt toast. It's, there's got to be a balance. In the colonial days, think George Washington. The, there was a man in every town in the Northeast called the tithing man. How would you like to have that as a designation? The tithing man. He wasn't the pastor, but he had, authority, he had a lot of authority. His authority, he had authority in town to make sure you were tithing. In fact, we're going to hire a guy like, no, we're not going to do that. But uh, that was one of the jobs he had. His job was to go make sure you, the Cypherts, were teaching their kids the Bible. He had the authority to do that. And he had authority to make sure you weren't working on the Sabbath. I know this because there is a town that has it in their record. George Washington himself 
because he was late in getting to one, from one place to another, rode into a town on his horse and was confronted by the tithing man who confronted him because he wasn't supposed to be working on the Sabbath. So Washington talks about that. He, he, he stayed there in the town and went to the services. He says he heard a lame preacher. I mean, probably ticked off from having to stay there. But at any rate, the tithing man, here's the deal. What he was most known for, are you ready for this? Was keeping order in the church. He would have a long staff, and on the one hand would be a hard ball, and on the other hand would be like a rabbit's foot or a feather. And he had the authority, because guys would be coming in, they'd be working all day, they'd be tired, and you know, the sermon was boring, and if Brian starts to nod off, the tithing man would just bop him right on the head with the ball. But they were always thoughtful of the women. They would always touch them with the feather. They gave the little boys that were acting up a special rap on the head. And you didn't, you always had to be thankful because he could have you flogged if you were disrespectful to him. Now, aren't you glad we don't have a tithing man? But you do have a pastor, elder, bishop, and his job is both the ball and the feather. To speak truth to you, confront you with truth, bang, hit you with the truth, but love you when you're down, help you when you need a word of encouragement. And that's the job of the pastor, to hold both the ball and the feather. And of course, I know that this, uh, you know, brings risk, risk of hurting feelings, you know, assaulting sensitivities. I've literally gone from hugging a person to confronting another within minutes and to be able to hold my wits about me while I was doing it. I have overseen church discipline. I've had to personally tell somebody to leave it's not fun. I have shed buckets of tears in over 20 years of ministry here. And I'm reminded of what David said in Psalm 119 and 136 where he says, Rivers of water fall, fall down my eyes because they don't keep your precepts. I wrote on the margin of my Bible, the cry of the pastor. So why am I saying all this? I mean, I, I once had a man who was resisting all counsel, several attempts to turn him around from being contentious, and several pastors were all saying the same thing. Some of us were in the same room, and he said, well, you're all pastors, which he revealed his disdain for authority right there. What do you do with a guy like that? Well, chapter 3, verse 10 tells you. Chapter 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's not something you enjoy doing. And I point this out to you because if you have romanticized the role of the pastor, elder, bishop, stop. Stop doing that. This, is, this isn't an option. It's a calling. It's a calling of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a, 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 a dispensation, a necessity is laid upon me, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. That's powerful stuff. And your calling is what will keep you going when the chips are way down. One of our most beloved missionaries is Lucas Baer. And many of you might remember his, his, you know, log in the eye sermon. You remember that famous sermon from a year or two ago? That rocked some of your world. But you probably forgot the sermon he preached about five years ago when he came off his first furlough. I'm telling you, 
he was beside himself. They were in the lowest point of their lives. He stood in this very platform and said, I remember looking at a big old black hole, and we're all going, where are you going with this? He was struggling. He was hurting. He was ready to throw the towel in. And he told Greg Pollock, our third church planner in the Engaged Network, dude, brother, let me tell you something. When the chips are down, you better remember your calling or you're not going to get through this. And that's what he said. It was his calling that brought him up out of the pit. And let me tell you something. Little did Greg know that he was right around the corner to a dark place in his life. And it was the calling of God in his life that kept him going. This isn't an option. This is a calling. And yet, in spite of the pressure, the heartaches, the disappointments, when you see, verse 9, the word, that's the word logos, that's the word of God, when you see the word do its glorious work of transfer, transformation, taking atheists like Brian Seifert and Frederick and Gemma Sandberg and turn them into theists who love Jesus, or broken marriages like Brant and Amy Hambly and turn them into something beautiful and bring blessing to others. And Matt and Emily Lewis, same thing, coming under the tutelage of Pastor Kurt and the Word of God and see their lives changed, to see somebody who's been disciplined out of the church for infidelity like Dean Bell brought to repentance and faith and renewal and encouragement in other people's lives, to see people who are, who are involved with drugs, suicidal, and a thief like Michael Adrian, or an addict like Summer Miller once was, transformed by the word of God into precious, Christ-honoring, tender-hearted servants, I tell you, it's worth it. A thousand times, a thousand heartaches, and a thousand regrets worth it because it's the call of God on his life. And you say, when are we going to do the Lord's table? How do you transition from that to that? Easy. First Peter chapter 2. And verse 25 says this of Jesus, but it says it to you and to me. You were wandering, you were once wandering sheep. Some of you are wandering right now. You're still out there on the periphery or you've jumped over the fence, but have returned. Have you returned? If you're a wanderer, have you returned? That's the, that's the loving feather that might feel like a ball at first. If you're a wanderer, have you returned? Watch this. To the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. He is the ultimate pastor, amen? He never screwed up. He, unlike me, he's never messed up. He's never sinned, unlike me. And by the way, I'm grateful for your tolerance and your patience with me. You put up with a lot. But you've never had to put up with this with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the bishop and the shepherd of your soul. And if you're a wavering, wandering, or wild sheep, then come to him and be saved. If you really are a Christian, but you've wandered off into another pasture you don't belong in, return to the shepherd and bishop of your soul. And then you can enjoy 
the fruits of salvation. And a moment like this, where we remember his perfect life and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Amen? If you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, let today be that day when you come into the sheep pen, so to speak, and come under protection and care of the greatest pastor who ever was, Pastor Jesus. Amen? God, thank you for our time together and for your word, for our worship and for Jesus, the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. We ask in Jesus' name that you would forgive us, draw us near to you. I thank you for this church, your people, their tolerance, their patience, their forgiveness of me and all the other elders. We pray, God, in Jesus' name that you would take this message and and allow your people to love the ministry and the call of God, whether they have it or not, and to be grateful to come under the authority of elders who love you, who have gotten it right because of you. Now bless us as we remember our great shepherd and bishop of our souls, his perfect life, his sacrificial death. In Jesus' name, amen. Great are you, Lord. Amen. He's a great shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And he's the only shepherd who never messed up. So today I would like to, I, I think, Jason, are you the only elder in here right now? Is any, are we have any other elders in here right now? Pastor Kurt, I think he's counseling. Pastor Jared and Pastor Abe were in the last message. Are either one of you here? Come up here, Abe, if you would, please. Jared, are you here? Come up here, Jason. These two guys can be representative of the of uh, this is half of your elders you're looking at right here. Okay, Pastor Paul uh, had to make an emergency trip for family reasons. He's on his way back from Ohio. You can be praying for him, or he'd be up here. Pastor Jared was just up here in the last service, and as I said, Pastor Kurt is actually counseling. I thank the Lord for these guys. They are worthy of the term elder. They're not perfect any more than I am. But they're men of God who God continues to work to be right in their hearts, in their homes, in their habits, and in their heads. I thank the Lord for them. I hope you do too. Some of you might be thinking, you know, and I've had a number of people have even asked, you know, uh, how do you make a subject like this applicable to 1,300 people when it only applies directly to 25 of them? <laughs> you know, there's like 1,275 people going, eh. I hope you can find application here. If you have six elders that are serving you, how are we doing? That's a good question to ask. Not asking presumptuously, how are we doing? That's your job to be looking at that. We have at least four or five men in this congregation and some of this room right now who are currently aspiring, not conspiring, <laughs> but aspiring to becoming pastors, elders, bishops. Are you praying for them? You say, well, I don't know them. Who cares if you don't know them? You'll, God will raise them up in time. In this very room are young men in some of these homes 
You know it, Dad. You know God has got his hand on this, this guy. He's a rascal right now. I get it. <laughs> I, I know what it's like to raise rascals. But God gets a hold of them and changes them. Would you pray for them that God will raise up young, mighty champions for Jesus in their youth? Pray for those that God is going to raise up as men of God to lead this church and other churches in the Engage Network and ones that haven't even come about yet, if God would have them. Would you pray for them? Would you pray for them? Just say yes. And if you're one of those individuals who are studying, praying, seeking, counseling, looking to see, I have a word for you. It's from the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Timothy 1.12, he said, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who has enabled me and counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. It's Jesus is the one who puts people into ministry. And may he put some of you. And, and if, if you're a woman, you're saying, well, you know, I, I, I guess the eldership is just for men. It is just for men. But the ministry isn't just for men. And God puts women into ministry. And God might be working on your heart and your life. Continue to keep your heart before him in that regard as you pray for others here. And to the flock here at Sailorville Church, as you relate to these elders and the ones who aren't here, the Bible says that you should uh, imitate them as they imitate Jesus. Are you willing to do that? The Bible says that you should submit or obey them because they watch for your souls. Are you willing to do that? The Bible says you should esteem them very highly for their work's sake. Will you do that and continue to do that? Because we all sense that you have. That would be our request of you as you pray for us. If God has spoken to your heart in some particular way to come to know Jesus or to aspire towards ministry, we are here for you. Talk to us. We want to encourage you in your walk with God. Amen? God bless you. Great. Thanks for coming. Have a great day. You're dismissed.